tell God all of my troubles when I get home. Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by T.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Should I Stay or Should I Go? The Colonization Controversy. A Quaker man is in bed and hears a noise downstairs. Grabbing his hunting rifle, he creeps down the stairs and finds that a thief has broken into his house. Aiming his gun at the thief, he says, Friend, I mean thee no harm, but thou art standing where I'm about to shoot. Not a great joke, perhaps, but it does illustrate one of the moral and religious convictions for which the Quakers are known, their rejection of violence. In hard-drinking early American society, they also stood out for their teetotaling ways. Hence the pithier joke, two Quakers walk into a bar, then realize their error. The Quakers were also known for their fierce, though of course pacifist, objection to slavery. A leading voice among them was John Woolman. His 1748 pamphlet, Some Considerations on the Keeping of Negroes, is remarkable for its early expression of the abolitionist position and its affirmation of equality between the races, founded in what Woolman called an idea of general brotherhood which is too often undermined by attention to outward circumstances, like skin color. Quakers were ahead of the rest of white America when it came to banning trade in, and then ownership of, slaves, and in 1775 they founded the Philadelphia Abolition Society, the country's first anti-slavery organization. Quakers were also willing to put their money where their mouths were, as Daniel Coker was glad to discover in 1802. Coker had been born into slavery in Maryland, but he escaped and was eventually able to purchase his freedom with the financial support of the Quakers. Like Richard Allen, he became a preacher and leader of the African Methodist movement, and also like Allen, he appealed to Christian principles as a basis for freedom and equality. In 1810, he published a remarkable pamphlet of his own, entitled A Dialogue Between a Virginian and an African Minister. The minister of the title may be seen as a mouthpiece for Coker, Though, as this minister engages in polite discussion with a slave-owning Virginian, he asks a friend called Mr. C, presumably short for Coker, to write down the conversation. This makes the work reminiscent of one of Plato's later dialogues, in which we take Socrates to be serving as a mouthpiece for Plato, even though we know that Plato was, historically, a student of Socrates. In any case, it must be said that if real pro-slavery Southerners had been as reasonable and easy to convince as this character, the course of American history would have been very different. More pliable than even the most cooperative interlocutor Socrates encounters in any of Plato's dialogues, the Virginian immediately concedes every point made by the minister before trying in vain to come up with a counterargument. For example, admitting that his knowledge of the Bible is rather sketchy, he gladly takes instruction on the true meaning of the scriptural passages that the white minister, whose church he attends, has scurrilously used to justify slavery. Coker also uses his dialogue to refute pragmatic and legalistic, rather than straightforwardly ethical or religious, justifications of slavery. Of particular philosophical interest is the discussion of slavery and the protection of property rights. Coker has the Virginian argue that whether it is right or wrong in moral terms, slaves are the legal property of their masters. To this, the minister offers a double response. On the one hand, laws allowing slavery have no force because the legislature had no original ownership or jurisdiction that would enable them to grant any person ownership over another. 
To think otherwise would be like thinking the government could allow the minister to buy another man's head. Have I, asked the minister, in consequence of this law and this purchase, a better claim to this man's head than himself? In keeping with this analogy, the minister claims that to free a slave is not wronging the master but doing justice to the slave, restoring him to himself. Yet right after this, the minister concedes that the slave owner may suffer because of his loss, and indeed may suffer greatly. The minister is even willing to call this suffering a kind of injustice. But as Coker writes, this is his own fault, and the fault of the enslaving law, and not of the law that does justice to the oppressed. The master is therefore victimized by his loss, but this is partly a self-inflicted wrong, and partly the fault of the legislature that failed to forbid slavery in the first place. The minister concludes that since injustice in this situation is unavoidable, it is obvious that we maximize justice by forcing slave owners to free their slaves, rather than forcing the enslaved to remain the property of their masters. Less appealing to the modern eye, at least at first, is Coker's response to the pragmatic argument against emancipation that it would lead to mixing of the races. The minister immediately agrees that the proliferation of mixed-race children would be a very alarming circumstance. He then points out, however, that under slavery, masters are already fathering children with slave women, meaning that the matter is already gone beyond recovery, for it may be proved with mathematical certainty that if things go on in the present course, the future inhabitants of America will be much checkered. Coker suggests that emancipation is in fact more likely to preserve racial purity. Even if it doesn't, the evil at stake here is already happening anyway, and in a manner that is more truly disgraceful to both colors. Miscegenation under slavery means fathers owning their children as slaves, brothers or sisters inheriting their siblings as property, and passing them down so that people eventually end up owning their own uncles and aunts. The minister's concession that miscegenation is an evil is especially striking because Coker himself was the son of a white mother. In fact, he may have declined to serve as bishop of the African Methodist Episcopal Church because of concerns over his light skin. After Allen took the position instead, Coker was for a time excluded from the church for reasons that remain unclear. Facing financial hardship, he made a momentous decision. He would go to Africa. Not back to Africa, of course, because, as we've said, Coker was born in Maryland. But he was one of numerous Americans of African heritage who, seeing dim prospects for themselves and their families even in the free northern states, decided to settle in one of the colonies being established in West Africa. Coker was a member of the first group of settlers sent by the American Colonization Society, ACS for short, which was formed in 1816 and which went on to found the colony of Liberia. For Coker, the colonization project offered the chance for a new start, as he explained in a journal he kept during his trip that was then published under the auspices of the ACS. Coker knew he had chosen a difficult road. Imagining himself as a latter-day Moses leading his people to a new promised land, he wrote, I expect to give my life to bleeding, groaning, dark, benighted Africa. It is a good land. It is a rich land. And I do believe it will be a great nation and a powerful and worthy nation, but those who break the way will suffer much. Coker was right to expect trials and tribulations. The initial colony, which was established on Sherbro Island, was a failure, so he abandoned it and the ACS to go settle in the British colony of Sierra Leone, of which Sherbro Island is today a part. With this mention of Sierra Leone, which we first discussed in episode 36, we come back to the Quakers. One specific Quaker to be exact, his name was Paul Cuffey. 
Cuffey was born in 1759 in Massachusetts to parents who were not official friends, as those in the Quaker movement are known, but who did follow its principles. His father was an Akan taken as a slave and then freed by his Quaker master. The surname Cuffey is a version of his father's original African name, Kofi. His mother, whose name was Ruth Moses, was Native American, specifically a Wampanoag. From rather modest beginnings, Paul Cuffey would rise to make his fortune in the shipping trade. He would become arguably the most prominent black man of early 19th century America, and almost certainly the richest. Cuffey was even invited to meet with President James Madison, who favored the idea of ending slavery by transporting the black population of America to Africa. In this endeavor, Cuffey was a promising ally. He first became interested in the emigrationist cause in 1787 when he heard about developments in Sierra Leone. Tellingly, this was the same year that Prince Hall and others were submitting a petition in Boston to request support for transportation to Africa. As a successful merchant, Cuffey had means and opportunity to move people between the United States and Africa. He was also frequently in Great Britain, where he was enthusiastically received by philanthropists who hoped that Sierra Leone could be a successful homeland for free blacks. In 1807, the Royal African Institution in Britain even published a biography of Cuffey. In a pattern that has already become familiar to us, this successful businessman was held up as a proof of the talent to be found among Africans. Cuffey is central to the story of the African Emigrationist Project. He transported settlers on his own ships, and he took a keen interest in their fortunes, as we learn from his extensive writings in the form of preserved letters and captain's logs. He aimed to keep open what he called a channel between America and Africa, and though he was aware of the challenges facing settlers in Africa, he trusted that the colonies established there would benefit generations to come. Cuffey's motivations in this undertaking were complex. Most obviously, he acted out of his sense of solidarity with fellow blacks in the United States. This had long been clear from the way he conducted business, such as employing all-black crews on his ships, which caused consternation when they docked in places like Maryland. And it's clear from his writings, as shown by an anecdote about meeting two Methodists in the street who asked whether Cuffey spoke English. Understandably offended, Cuffey replied, yes, but that there was a part I did not understand, namely that of one brother professor making merchandise of and holding in bondage their brother professor. This part I should be glad they would clear up to me. But Cuffey was not only trying to help African Americans escape slavery and racism, he also hoped to transform Africa itself. This motive drove his initial interest in Sierra Leone. He wrote of feeling a real desire that the inhabitants of Africa might become an enlightened people. As I am of the African race, I feel myself interested for them, and if I am favored with a talent, I think I am willing that they should be benefited thereby. Or, take this later, briefer remark, my mind is to render all the aid to Africa in my power. He spoke freely of wanting to promote civilization in Africa, and saw this as a kind of recompense for the ravaging of the continent by the slave trade. Religion and Quaker values were central to this undertaking, as shown rather eloquently by the list of gifts he presented to a native king upon arriving in West Africa, a Bible, a Quaker history, and an essay on pacifism. Cuffey was also a deeply practical man, who penned a watchword, summing up his ethical outlook, that began, By experience I have ever found when I attended to my business, I seldom suffered loss, and finished, the surest way to conquer strong drink is to make no use of it. We are born and must die. His thinking about African emigration was likewise very practical in nature. He knew colonies there would succeed only if they made money. 
So he linked the cause of civilizing Africa to the creation of wealth, writing, Now if we could return into the country of our ancestors, and carry the seeds of civilization, in return for this great injury that she has so long groaned under, and thus for her to enjoy a peaceable privilege of agriculture and commerce, as the other nations do enjoy, it doth feel to me that this would be the greatest blessing that that country could be favored with. He harped constantly on the need for settlers in Sierra Leone to be of good character, not merely because Cuffey was a moralist, but because he thought the colony would otherwise fail. Cuffey lived long enough to see the founding and initial forays of the American Colonization Society before he died in 1817. Like Daniel Coker, Cuffey saw the ACS more as an ally than a competitor. But as Richard Allen and James Fortin realized when their community unanimously rejected proposals for removing blacks to Africa, an event we discussed at the end of the last episode, the ACS was ultimately counterproductive for the cause to which Cuffey devoted so much time, money, and effort. This is because the motives of the society were highly suspect. While some of its members and leaders were sincere abolitionists, the ACS also included such figures as Henry Clay, Speaker of the House of Representatives, a slave owner, who said frankly that he wanted to remove free blacks in order to rid our country of a useless and pernicious, if not dangerous, part of our population. Another well-known member who owned slaves was Francis Scott Key, who wrote the lyrics of the national anthem of the United States, the Star-Spangled Banner. Many African-American leaders in the North therefore turned against the ACS. The fiery abolitionist David Walker called it a cunningly devised plot of Satan. Even some who had originally been in favor of emigration, like Allen and Fortin, were stern in their critique. Allen, for example, wrote that it was clearly for the interest of the slaveholder that blacks still in chains should be prevented from seeing their free brethren. An excellent example of this shift in attitude is provided by Peter Williams, Jr. of New York. At first, he was a supporter of emigration and close collaborator of his dear friend, Cuffey. But by 1830, he was giving an impassioned sermon on the 4th of July in which he attacked the ACS and its perverse proposal that Black Americans could be improved by, as he put it, being sent far from civilized society. This was not necessary for the improvement of Africa, which could be achieved without exiling free Black Americans there. In fact, that might well backfire, given that, as Williams alertly observed, European colonization had caused ruin among Native Americans. The following passage sums up the gist of Williams' sermon nicely. We are natives of this country. We ask only to be treated as well as foreigners. Not a few of our fathers suffered and bled to purchase its independence. We ask only to be treated as well as those who fought against it. We have toiled to cultivate it and to raise it to its present prosperous condition. We ask only to share equal privileges with those who come from distant lands to enjoy the fruits of our labor. Let these moderate requests be granted, and we need not go to Africa nor anywhere else to be improved and happy. Amidst this turn of black opinion against the ACS, it was bound to cause controversy when one African-American leader suddenly came to support its policies. This is what we see in the case of John Russworm, whose change of mind went in the reverse direction to what we've just seen with Williams. Together with Samuel Cornish, the Jamaican-born Russworm had founded Freedom's Journal, the first black newspaper in the United States. At first, he took a strong stand against colonization, writing, Never shall we consent to emigrate from America until the prior removal from this land of their degradation and suffering. But in an about-face that shocked contemporaries, Russworm declared his support for the ACS in 1829 and then went to Liberia himself. He was accused of selling out 
in the most literal sense, many asserted that he had only switched his allegiance to the ACS because he had fallen on hard times. Among those who made this charge was the abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison, despite the fact that Garrison himself was initially a supporter of the ACS. The controversy over Russworm continues to the present day, with monographs on him published in 2005 and 2010 taking in the first case a highly critical, and in the second a highly laudatory approach to Russworm's change of mind and his subsequent career in Africa. Much of the disagreement between those two books concerns the question of Russworm's attitudes towards the indigenous peoples of Africa he ruled over as governor of the colony called Maryland in Liberia, which was founded by the Maryland State Colonization Society. Russworm's choice to emigrate, though, was not primarily a matter of negative or positive attitudes towards Africa. It was inspired by his pessimism concerning the United States. Having concluded that it was impossible to rise in America because the mere name of color blocks up every avenue, he saw the so-called land of the free as a place where freedom would forever remain out of reach. Provocatively, he wrote in an editorial in the Liberia Herald, Before God, we know of no other home for the man of color of Republican principles than Africa. Has he no ambition? Is he dead to everything noble? Is he contented with his condition? Let him remain in America. Let him who might here be an honor to society remain a sojourner in a land where it is impossible to be otherwise. His spirit is extinct, and his friends may as well bury him now. Here we arrive at the philosophical heart of the dispute over colonization. From the practically-minded captain's logs of Paul Cuffey, detailing how much African wood had been loaded onto his trading ships, to the bitter recriminations and self-justifications that have surrounded John Russworm for nearly two centuries now, the documents concerning emigration all circle around a central question. If individuals belonging to a group that has been subject to discrimination are to have rights, does the group to which they belong need to have political autonomy? Cuffey zeroed in on this issue when he wrote of Sierra Leone, I am convinced that that is the country in which this people might rise to be a people, if they could be prepared for self-government. Implicit in this optimistic remark is its assumption that being a people requires escaping from the constraints imposed by other people. The same view was put forward in a more pessimistic tone by Russworm, who came to the conclusion that it was impossible to attain success in America as an African. When a society is sufficiently hostile, you must disengage from it rather than trying fruitlessly to reform it. Of course, to a large extent, this question was simply a practical one. What were the real prospects of full citizenship for free blacks in early 19th century America? But at a more abstract level, it is a question that lies at the heart of many of today's political disputes, and not only those concerning race. When separatist movements around the world seek independence, or when feminists insist upon the need for women-only spaces, they too are asserting an intimate connection between individual freedom and institutional self-determination. These same political movements were then, and still are, also expressions of group identity. Indeed, if you consider the figures we've covered over the past couple of episodes, you'll realize that they were among the earliest thinkers to define an identity or people that spans Africa and the African diaspora. They were articulating an idea that is also embodied by our own podcast series. When we labeled our topic as Africana philosophy and explained that we would be beginning as far back as ancient Egypt and considering everything from the intellectual traditions of pre-colonial Africa up to recent thought in Africa and the African diaspora, this may have seemed to some a recent fabrication rather than something more organic and long-standing. 
Skeptics may have wondered whether our project is a manifestation of today's so-called identity politics rather than reflecting a real historical tradition. But by now, it should be evident that for diasporic Africans, identity has always been political, and also that our guiding idea of Africana culture has been embraced by intellectuals and leaders for the past several centuries. Thus, we saw Prince Hall identifying Egyptian antiquity as part of his Masonic heritage, an ideal foundation upon which to build a new African-American identity. And we find something similar in John Russworm. Writing in Freedom's Journal about the experience of seeing an exhibited Egyptian mummy, he mused, My thoughts were insensibly carried back to former times, when Egypt was in her splendor and the only seat of chivalry, science, arts, and civilization. As a descendant of Cush, I could not but mourn over her present degradation, while reflecting upon the mutability of human affairs and upon the present condition of a people who, for more than 1,000 years, were the most civilized and enlightened. Similarly, it's clear that even if Cuffey and other emigrationists saw the people of Africa in their time as uncivilized, in need of both commercial and religious uplift, they also saw these Africans as their brethren. Cuffey referred at one point to the great family of Africa, while Peter Williams expressed the hope and conviction that Cuffey's work would promote the spiritual and temporal welfare of our unhappy race. Who was it that Williams intended to refer to here as unhappy and in need of uplifting? Black Americans? The indigenous peoples of Africa? Despite the vigorous opposition to leaving America that the ACS later provoked in him, the obvious answer is both. Next up, it will be time to imitate Paul Cuffey doing inventory on one of his ships and take stock. We'll be looking back over the figures and themes discussed in the past several episodes, starting with early American figures like Phyllis Wheatley, getting deeper into the historical context and significance of early Black institutions in America, and talking about emigration and the founding of colonies in West Africa. For this, we'll be joined by one of America's leading scholars on these very trends and events. So don't leave us now, stick around, to hear an interview with James Sidbury in the next episode of The History of Africana Philosophy. I'm gonna tell God all of my troubles